What's up, everyone? This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read some books this week. I watched a movie this week. We're starting a two-parter series. We are covering The Master, Spielberg. As adapteur, we are covering the man Steven Spielberg. Uh, I watched a uh, wonderful documentary on HBO called Spielberg by Susan Lacey. And I had done some research, and uh, I've read Jaws in the past. I've read Catch Me If You Can. Yes, He's, we're both we're no. both huge cat. We're we're both mutually Catch Me If You Can fans. Uh, we saw the stage production of Catch Me If You Can <laughs> in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, a, a few years ago. Uh, but yeah, so we're gonna just jump right into everything he's done, how in the world he's been able to do all of this, and maybe what all this stuff is based on because it's not original. You know, he's not just some idea man who you know, like he didn't originate all of these things. It's actually a surprising amount of this is adaptation and mm-hmm. playing with ideas and what his lens really is made up and what that does to the material that he that he attacks. Yeah. Um I think it's thi- a really interesting point of view. Mm-hmm. And the thing that he pioneered in terms of the point of view what's called the new Hollywood era, the mid 1960s to the early 1980s. And I guess the big premise behind this was that the director rather than the studio system was taking the key role. It wasn't like, oh, that's an MGM production. It's like, no, that's a Martin Scorsese film. Yeah. And so that's 70s he, or, or a rambling time for <laughs> for uh, for cinema. Uh, and you had auteurs really just going off the, a new wave of, of going off and making films in ways that had never been done before. Right. Uh, and, it, you know, it ushered in a completely new era, like you're saying. Remind you, Jaws is 75. Mm-hmm. This is a wild period that Spielberg and his buddies are on the forefront of. And it changed the front of the art form really story, just story period. Because one of the main things that he changed, he was the creator of the first summer blockbuster, like you said, Jaws. There was never such a thing like that before him. And then when you're talking about riding the wave, he created these big escapist films and then also dabbled in films of very serious yeah. human issues. So he he's done it all. And just as an example off of that is Jurassic Park and Schindler's List are done in the same year. His 1993 <laughs> yeah. is bananas. I mean, can you imagine the jump in that material? Uh, yeah. Th- <laughs> Working on both almost some of it is at the same time. Simultaneously. We'll, we'll, yes. we'll get to all that. Yeah, of course. So that's um, also uh, highest grossing film director in history. He's made the most money. So his net worth is between three and seven billion. We don't know because <laughs> he gets so many random residuals from things and oh it'd be impossible gosh. to parse it together. But as of now, I believe 34 films. So let's just jump in. What is he all about? Born in Ohio, December 18th, 1946. So his 74th birthday is coming up. He's getting up there. Gosh. Yeah. It's from an Orthodox Jewish family. They moved to New Jersey and then to Arizona, he was in a Hebrew school for a bit. He said he was embarrassed as a seven, eight, nine-year-old by the perception of his parents' practices mm. and was bullied in high school for it, mm. which then comes around later with Schindler's List we'll get to, where he's re-accepting his Jewish heritage and coming to understand right. it. Right. But the, the film stuff came around age 12, the apocryphal story, the first home movie was a train wreck with Lionel train sets. <laughs> And then he was in the Boy Scouts. That's a big part of his life. But he got his photography merit badge and his dad's still camera was broken. So he asked the scout leader if he could use a movie camera and made a little oh, nine yeah. minute Western film. 
and then got the merit badge for photography. But the way, the way this camera came about was because his mom actually got it as a present for his dad on a camping trip. And Stephen was like, okay. can I be the family photographer? And then the very next year at age 13, he made a 40 minute war film with his high school friends and won a prize for it. There's Maybe footage of him making like this, um, and there, there's I've seen behind the scenes of him actually putting this <laughs> together. It's kind of it's it's wildly inspiring. I mean, and it looks it looks yeah. just like it looks just like what me and my friends were doing. What you know, kids across America are still doing every every mm-hmm. day. I mean, it, it it's just it's beautiful to see it. And like, oh my god, that kid actually did grow up to do like you can just see it all come together around him. It's really amazing. It's like he had it from the beginning, from like I said, right, from age exactly. twelve, and then into high school. He makes fifteen more amateur films, although they're yeah. much more than what most kids would do as an amateur. So at age sixteen, he made this two-hour and twenty-minute sci-fi film called Firelight. Oh my gosh! Made for five hundred dollars, which he borrowed from his dad. It actually screened at a local Phoenix cinema, and he earned the budget back plus one dollar. So he made a yes. dollar. In the black baby. (laughs) I think he said 500 people came and maybe somebody accidentally gave him $2. I mean, what a success. It paid for itself. (laughs) Well, that's also, it's like, that's what most kids don't get that at all is like, oh, it is a business and you want to sell. So I read this great interview with his mom where she was saying she put the letters up on the marquee and was thinking, oh, this is a nice hobby, you know, but he, he would, I think the thing that people don't realize is that he gets everybody involved. So like he did music on the clarinet for this sci-fi film that he made his mom who was a, a concert pianist transposed it into sheet music and then the high school band performed it and the drama class yes. acted in it so it's like he yes. it, that's that's what he does I and i guess that. if you could kind of speak to because he wants to be this director but it's like i think a lot of people don't even really know the film jobs what from your perspective evan does a director do well really the director is the one who decides what image makes you feel the the precise emotional uh, takeaway. So it's, is this a scary image? Is that what I need at this precise moment? If I put it up to this image, what does that say? The director is really the one who is who has to have the the vision of what the film is through line is going to be about emotionally. What does it say if I cut to her eyes as she flickers as he says something? What is that saying about what we know between the two of them? This is a person that's that's got to be incredibly intimate with human beings. I mean, this is an emotional job. This is trying to put the intangible, the things you can't put words to, into visuals. It's what makes you feel alive. And so it's a director is somebody chasing that, that feeling. And they, I guess, trying to understand the the technical side of things, then they would employ everybody else that has these. I mean, they still have artistic input, but like the the technical skills of the camera and the lighting and the editing. Exactly. So to fulfill this is that. somebody who's then, okay, they've got the vision and they've got the emotional point that they've got to get to. But he's also going to have the wherewithal to understand what that takes to get there. How many hands are in the pot of just the one image that we're going after right now? Right. How many how many people are involved? How many departments? This is somebody who's got to be able to communicate person to person. You've got to communicate an emotional takeaway. This is not a short bark and orders. It's on the it's on the list. You know, this is not <laughs> one of those types of jobs. Right. Um, so this is somebody who's really got to attack material from all perspectives. It's really got to be a bit of a cheerleader oh, that's and, beautiful. and understands yeah. what they're asking of people and why they're asking it. 
Yeah, so it seems like he's got all of it from the beginning, even in high school. He's got that leadership sensibility. I, I looked into, like I said, with this interview with his mom, because a lot of the stuff we see with these early artists in their life, they have either parents that are really encouraging or just conducive, like with Dr. Seuss, where he was basically living in a zoo, you know, and ha- and, yeah. and his parents were giving him right. the wherewithal to do it. So his parents didn't, like I said, she said, oh, it's a nice hobby. So they let him do this stuff. Right. So it's like his mom, this is a direct quote from her. Quote, when he was growing up, I didn't know he was a genius. Frankly, I didn't know what the hell he was. I'm really I'm really ashamed, but I didn't recognize the symptoms of uh, talent. I did him an injustice. I had no idea back then that my son would be Steven Spielberg. Oh my gosh. So and and just he, he did this a lot is of what I'm interested yeah, in with yeah. him. The more and more I watch these movies, the more that I'm 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 zeroed in on his view of the relationship between parent and child. Yeah, some he he's got a question about what is the relationship between parent mm-hmm. and child really mean? Where and like I said, his from? parents. What do you do with it? Yeah, they they. Like she said once she remembered. I took Stephen to the Grand Canyon. He said, "This is nice," and then he threw up. With Stephen, you held on for dear life. Like he just, it wasn't even maybe necessarily film, but it's like clearly he's doing all that, and he made fifteen films as a high schooler. But he's just doing a lot of stuff. It probably was a whirlwind, and he has siblings as well, to just get him out the door (laughs) and get him on with life. So, for example, like his dad gave him a copy of The Scarlet Letter because Steven Spielberg hates reading or hated it as a kid. Mm -hmm. So he drew a flip book of a bowler knocking down bowling pins in the corner. And Steven said in an interview that this was his first film adapted from another medium. The uh, the flip book, <laughs> which nobody else will tell you, but we'll tell you that. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. You heard it here on a link. <laughs> like you said, in terms of the complications with his family. So he moved to Saratoga, California for senior year because his parents divorced. So he stayed with his father thereafter in L.A. and wanted to become a film director. And that's where the, the dissonance comes from, where his parents were holding it together Mm. I guess, like they say, for the kids, and then yeah. broke and apart and just right? missed that. Yeah, and just missed that connection in that formative. I mean, they still loved him and they cared for him and all the sure. all the stuff, but it just that definitely affected him, uh, as we see a lot of things. And this, in, you in know, and I'm I'm just people. thinking about I'm I'm thinking about what maybe his loneliness would have felt like. I mean, right there from his mom. We didn't know he was going to be who he was. Even, you know, you know, he's 17. He's still not, you know, he's still their little Steven or mm-hmm. whatever. You know, I'm thinking about now they've got their own problems. I mean, everybody does. Mm-hmm. And but they still don't know who he is. Mm-hmm. And I find that just wild. When you get down to it, I mean, this is somebody who's who's deeply, deeply <laughs> empathetic and, yeah. and really found what he was built to do mm-hmm. in, in so, so many yeah. ways. Yeah. Because of that, he applies to UCLA in Los Angeles. He didn't even apply to USC because it's a private school and it's too expensive. Yeah. So he knew he yeah. couldn't do it and then was turned down at UCLA because of his grade average. He had a C. So he had to go to California State University in Long Beach and uh, they didn't have a film program. So he went for English. So it seems like, oh, well, that's the end of Stevens, you know, like, right. <laughs> there it is. But uh, he and he became an accountant. Right. <laughs> and his family was proud. <laughs> Not so fast. He gets into the film world by being an unpaid intern at 
Universal Studios in the editing department. And he's still not giving up making <laughs> these short films. So he's made this 26-minute film called Amblin that he got financing from a friend who was an aspiring producer and gave him $10,000 to mm. make it. This guy has never produced anything or wow. hired actors or anything. Yeah. The, the main actor was a librarian at the Beverly Hills Public Library. Solid choice. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it was a silent film. Nobody speaks. So, I mean, he probably saw this quiet guy and hey, said, yeah. Sounds good. Um, <laughs> but one of the... Yeah, hey, I'm a main character in a Steven Spielberg movie. <laughs> the first okay. one, yeah. <laughs> but this is regarded as his first thing. You know, he sh- went to film festivals, he got sh- shown to people. Yeah. There was a studio VP, Sidney Scheinberg, who was impressed by it and offered him a seven-year directing contract for television, which was the youngest person wow, ever signed for yeah. a long-term deal with the studio, just based on this work. Just for and some I, kid who's like jump, you know, like sneaking onto the lot, mm-hmm. <laughs> working in some other being department. an unpaid intern. Yeah, and get out of here. <laughs> yeah, watch my film. So, and you could tell even from the other stuff, it's like he definitely pushed himself into that position. It wasn't yeah. like oh, just luck, and he got a seven-year contract. No. So he drops out of college to direct TV. He didn't Solid finish choice. At, at Long Beach. So now we'll kind of go through the decades. This is the 70s. We'll skip back a little bit. 1969. It was the first thing he did in Hollywood was a segment of a pilot for this show called Night Gallery, which was a horror anthology. Mm. Um, so he's just doing one of those little pieces of yeah, the anthology. Yeah. The actress in it, though, is Joan Crawford, who is this no massive way massive classic star she's older at the time but she has already done like she was from the beginning of hollywood she has done thus far 31 silent pictures and 59 sound features that's bananas he's what (laughs) she's absolutely horrified well she's like i cannot be with this 21 year old first time (laughs) director doing this she 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 well so she gave him a chance and just recognized she was like i was worried because he's not experienced but she said experience does not always equal intuitive inspiration Mm. and she wrote him a note at the time recognizing his talent and being like it doesn't matter there's these guys that they have quote-unquote experience but they're horrible and here's somebody who really has it and they ended up being close friends until she died in 77 Mm. so eight years later but just crazy that he befriended this lady who is 50 plus years his senior and has seen it all from the beginning i love i love her reaction i can't be in here (laughs) and then she like listens to herself and then like okay let me see what this is about and then like gives him the time of day Mm -hmm. and reassesses and like my god look at this he can do it wow this is great and god she shepherds in the king of cinema and she you know she, she doesn't even know by the time she's gone you know, like he's he's on his way, but wow, oh my god, yeah, crazy. Um, that is beautiful. I mean, sometimes I mean, I I just I just want to acknowledge her her arc there of just like <laughs> I can't do this with who is she? Well, all right, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's yeah. beautiful. I love it, it. It is beautiful. So because of that, he ends up getting a few more TV episodes, does some feature length television pieces, and then was signed by Universal again to do four TV films. And such begins the adaptation Mm. game. (laughs) So here we are. 
his first one was a film called Duel, which is Duel. Really a cult classic. Uh, based, I love on, this film. It's yeah. the predecessor for Jaws. If you mm-hmm. haven't seen it, it's so fun. It is a man running in his little white car from this monstrous, this horrible truck, this tractor trailer running him down, and mm-hmm. it's just a fate. You, there's no driver. It's just just a horn that just <laughs> chases you, and it is totally. It's it's him working out the visual language of what will become Jaws and just. A couple mm. years. I love the movie. It's such a little popcorn movie. I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, for a TV, for a made-for-TV oh, yeah. film. It was based on a short story by Richard Matheson, who's the no same way. guy who wrote I Am Legend. Oh, no. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. So that's, that's, what it's, that's what it's based on. Um, yes. And then the next TV film he does is called Something Evil, and it's about this kid who's possessed wow. by a demon. It was because, so not quite an adaptation, but The Exorcist was a very popular book and hadn't mm. yet been made into the film, but right. they didn't have the rights for it. So they made this other film that's very similar because they're like, oh, exorcisms are popular because of the oh, book. Oh, d- this is his knockoff. Awesome. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then did some other things, a pilot of a show that was never picked up on. But his first actual mm-hmm. now not TV film, his film, is called the Sugarland Express. Yes, and yes. adaptation based on a real life incident he saw from a newspaper. It's about a husband and wife trying to outrun the law. Did poorly at the box office, but again, you're talking about he's getting a sense for what is Steven Spielberg. What? How does he do things on film sets? But this is where he met this guy named John Williams, who becomes one of the most amazing <laughs> composers of all music, of all films, of all time. He worked with him on this. John Williams had done a few things before, but this is his first time with Steven. And then thereafter, it's um, magic. It's magic because in 1975, Jaws. We're on, on, baby. And this is based on a novel by Peter Benchley, yet another adaptation. And they are giving it, the producers, to this 26-year-old college dropout who has made (laughs) a couple things. (laughs) Um, and you know how you know what you know how it goes for them. Uh, months and months over schedule, pain. millions of dollars <laughs> over budget, uh, lost confidence from the crew, almost shut cast. down multiple times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is one. I mean, if you don't know, it is the classic uh, Hollywood failure story. Except it's a Cinderella story because they brought it home, turned it around, <laughs> and it won a bunch of Oscars. So and, and <laughs> defined the. Summer blockbuster. Yes. Like started literally like a new, <laughs> like a new phenomena in the medium. It set the uh, record for box office gross, the highest of all time, made him a household name, and then gave him the autonomy to do what he wanted. But he described it, like you said, it was his professional crucible. It was the do yeah. or die. The and day they stop production, the producers think, my God, finally it's over. Maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe people will forget about this and we, it will just go away. Mm-hmm. You know, like, okay, he's gone. It's over. And we're not, it's, we're not bleeding money anymore. Steven takes it away at a little pool shop. There's on, there's an editor and they edit the movie and they bring it back. And they had what they had. But the, until that time, my God. There was no way they were ever going to make their money back. There was no way they were going to ever get any other projects done. Steven was never going to work in Hollywood again. Uh, If the movie had not worked, there would be no Steven Spielberg as we know him. But he shot into the stratosphere and it allowed him to do whatever he wanted. So everybody wants him now, but he actually- Look at the magnitude, the magnitude, the weight of the shift of that. (laughs) Either you're going home. 
this is uh, this is so this this mess up is so big it's irrevocable you've ruined other careers other uh, than your own richard stanley who uh <laughs> did that we talked about the hp lovecraft episode where he just disappeared for 30 years or whatever because this is it yeah. this was really it this was really it this mo- <laughs> so that's the magnitude of this because uh, there's no in between there just isn't Mm-hmm. It either is a failure or it, my God, it turns into what it, what it turned into. What, I mean, what a Cinderella story. But in an interesting turn of events, he, because he has the leverage, he rejects ah, yes, a leverage. lot of propositions. It's all about the leverage. He rejects, they want, they're like, we want Jaws too. And he's like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and then they're like, well, what about King Kong? We're doing a, another King Kong. He's like, nah. And then they're like, well, what about Superman? And he's like, no way. So all of those things could have been Steven Spielberg things that they had offered him. And he was like, I don't want to do any of those. I, I totally get I, I totally get why he doesn't want Jaws 2. Any other reasoning mm-hmm. just behind the other, just because they're big properties? What is, I'm just curious as to what the immediate, like, well, obviously not. You know? I mean, I think it was because they were big properties and he had just yeah. been through yeah. this personal hellscape yeah. of big properties. So the next thing he does, he works with Richard Dreyfuss again, who was in Jaws on this thing that he really wanted to do, that he had an idea that he spent $500 on, and it becomes Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Which is a movie about a man losing his touch with (laughs) reality and his family because he's working on something. But it is almost exactly (laughs) that film, Firelight, that he made in high school. Really? Yes. No way. Yes, there are certain things that are shot-for-shot elements of Firelight. Oh, my God. And he said, I want to do it the way that I want to do it. So this comes out in 1977. It is both written and directed by him. So this is one of the rare ones that's an original, but it's almost not an original because it's an adaptation of something he already did as a Ah, kid. He he got himself. Look, (laughs) he He adapted himself. Yeah, (laughs) but he had lots of help on the rewrites. And this is one of the things where it's like, oh, he wrote it, but he's not a writer. He's a director. And so this is one of them. Does amazingly well again. But it's a smaller, more intimate, not as crazy. It's still, a, I guess, considered a summer blockbuster, but it has a certain spirituality. Yeah, so we're in that we're in that it. sophomore slump. It's yes, <laughs> but we're in that sophomore slump era here, where he's you know, it's it's a good movie, but it's no Jaws. And mm-hmm. okay, what does that mean next? Nobody's sure. This is weird, but it's good. But that's no guarantee. Yeah. So the next film, most people don't know about it. It is one of the biggest lessons of his career, he said, because it was Mm -hmm. a flop. And Mm -hmm. so the film is called 1941. Ah, Steven Spielberg loves war films. This is a war action comedy film. His friend Stanley Kubrick said it probably should have been marketed as a drama. Ah. It did profit worldwide, but did horrible in North America. So it was considered a box office bomb. And he had joked about converting it to a musical halfway into production. It just was not his forte. He was lambasting the other works that he had done in terms of Jaws and yeah. Duel with it. Interesting. We, we had mentioned in uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, we were talking about Robert Zemeckis and how he didn't get that project right away because he, was, he had a couple of bombs or things that's like, oh, this right. should do well, but it didn't. So this is one that he wrote. Right. That was one of those oh things. Gosh, and yes. he encountered Spielberg because Zemeckis was just a student at USC who barged into his office and uh, gave him the script and everything. And so Spielberg, like I said, it, it was he said the personal arrogance got in the way after his success. He did not cede control of 
the miniature sequences and the action sequences to second units and model directors, he was then saying, oh, I'm going to fix that the next time. And so sequel mania (laughs) comes into play. And so they want him to do a sequel to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. What? And I so, didn't even realize that. Yeah, yeah. Oh he, my but, gosh, so, that just but, sounds bad. But he was like, I don't want to do it. But he's like, I also <laughs> yeah. don't want Columbia Pictures to make a sequel without me like Jaws, because Lord knows right. Jaws 2, I haven't seen it, but I hear it's like, you know, the sequel's progressively Yeah, yeah, slow. it's definitely Far Cry. I have a soft spot for him, a Jaws <laughs> fan, but it's definitely Far Cry from the first one. Yeah. It's fun. It's, it's fun. It's fun. So in order to avoid this whole Close Encounters 2 nightmare, he makes his own horror treatment, but it's something different. And it's called Night Skies. And it's about aliens coming down and they're trying to communicate with livestock and then Mm. attack this human family. It's based on another adaptation, the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter in Kentucky, this story where these people claim to be attacked by these gremlin-like aliens. So he's Mm. got this in the works now. And we'll come to that as we go into the 80s. He recommends his friend John Williams to this guy who's been working on this side film. This uh, His friend has gone to Hawaii to avoid, similar to how it's like, oh God, Jaws is going to be not good. <laughs> his friend <laughs> goes to Hawaii to avoid He's it. He's exiled it, to Hawaii. Yeah. yeah. This is uh, his friend George Lucas, who he had introduced <laughs> John Williams to. And together in Hawaii, while they're waiting for Star Wars to do terrible, it ends up doing amazing, of course. <laughs> George Lucas is like, hey, I have this idea, and it's called The Adventures of Indiana Smith. Is this something you'd be interested in? (laughs) So now we move into the 80s, and they're collabing on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Here we go. (laughs) It is not an adaptation, but what it is is an homage to the serials of the golden age of Hollywood, these cliffhanger kind of escapades. Yeah, It is just a hearkening back, baby. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. It's beautiful. There is a spitball session that they recorded for three days where they go back and forth. They're like, here's, we know what we want to do. Somebody has the audio recording and turned it into a transcript. So I'll post a link to that. Oh, but it's yes. Just, I would love to read that. It's just you. bizarre to see how, I mean, it's like some of it is offensive or off color or like, you know, it's kind of like the South Park writer's <laughs> room where it's like, clearly there, this isn't, this wasn't supposed it's to be blender. for anybody. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's the, yeah, 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 but yeah. But like, it is just wild to see like, oh, they're actively just like, we have this kind of vague idea. Let's come up with what is this thing? This is um, three men in a room knowing millions of dollars are on the line. Uh, and they've all agreed to this illusion. Yeah. <laughs> and they blast it out. Um, so now it ends up getting into production. Steven Spielberg is supposed to be shooting this Night Skies thing that he was coming up with after Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he had been doing tests of animatronics. There was a draft of a script. There's these all these different aliens, and one of them befriends one of the sons. Um, mm-hmm. They're doing these animatronic tests. One alien has this long finger with an eerie light. But it just didn't work. So there's an amicable departure with this current writer. And like we said, Spielberg is working on Raiders. He's in Tunisia killing Nazis, blowing up planes. And he's like, I've got to get back to the tranquility, the spirituality of Close Encounters. Like we said, like, yeah. what is my yeah. sequel that I'm supposed to be doing after this turning into? So he speaks to Melissa Matheson, who was dating and then married Harrison Ford. And she read this script and broke down at the part talking about this tender, caring alien. 
So she ends up becoming the writer for the script, now known wow. as E.T. That's incredible. So that's what I had no idea. The Close Encounters 2 became. It's, I just wanted to bring all of that up to kind of show how these things turn and move and flip around and get people added on to them. They're paint. I mean, this is this is sketching, you know? They, <laughs> you, you would try these ideas. Ah, that didn't work. But this did. This didn't. We bring up uh, Roger Rabbit again, uh, tangentially. But I, I, you know, I got to see a, a documentary about original concept art mm-hmm. for for that and the guys that designed him. And it was amazing to see the different versions that they just threw at each other. Um, and they're wildly different. And they're mm-hmm. bonkers and look nothing like uh, Roger Rabbit, as we know. But there are elements that work. And it's just that process. It's that messy process of just throwing something on the wall and mm-hmm. seeing what's good about it, being able to know no insecurities. Just throw it on the wall. What works? What doesn't work? It's that beautiful, that beautiful alchemy. Um, and also all the animatronic stuff that they had spent tons of money on testing. It's like, well, we could still use that. It, we're not, we're still doing a movie about an alien, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it's not, th- and that's what that's, they can do a whole shoot as a, as just a test and it, you know, oh no, didn't work. I don't know what, we don't <laughs> know what right. this idea is yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's something to the creative process for that. So we see the logo for Amblin Entertainment is the bicycle going across the yeah. moon. But where does that, because we know that's Steven Spielberg. So that comes into the picture right now. 1981 is when he makes that production company um, uh, with a couple people. One of them who they get into the mix is Kathleen Kennedy. Here we go. She started her first film that she produced with them was E.T. So wow. she's now the president of Lucasfilm miss star wars right <laughs> person she's in, in everything man you go back yeah. and look i you know every once in a while just a great movie from the 90s you know mm-hmm. I'll, I'll watch it like i remember this she produced the role it. you know like the sixth sense mm-hmm. credits role produced by kathleen kennedy what <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's everywhere it. she's yeah. everywhere she's so, all <laughs> yeah so et comes out in 1982 based on an imaginary alien friend that Steven Spielberg had after his parents' divorce. Mm. So this is one of the f- first ones where he's really digging into his personal life subject matter that he's a lot of the stuff that happens in the script. He worked with Melissa on to become part of it. So so if we look at this, we've had this sophomore slump of him really trying to figure out, OK, what is it about? what I've got to say that works. And he's finally realizing by E.T. that it's really coming down to what he knows about. Mm-hmm. You know, if he didn't have the fire burning from the, the, the trauma of his parents' divorce, I don't know if E.T. would be compelling. And right. I don't know if he would get any of these next. Well, and they said it was, he said it was the like we see Jaws, massive epic thing, Raiders of the Lost Ark, massive epic thing. It's like he was alone filming in Tunisia. He had time to think about what do I want to do next? I don't want to do this again, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that's definitely a huge part of it. I thought what was cool with the actual production, like you're talking about the director being the emotional voice. Yes. So this was shot in chronological order, which is not done with films. Wow, yeah. You have yeah. locations, you shoot them, you have actors that can only be available at certain the times. The filmmaking process is like the most economic. Everything is about the dollar. So if you if this location is in the movie, throughout the movie, but it, it's, it's light on the back end, well, you bet you better bet they're, it's gonna, we're going to shoot this out and then we're done with it. Everything is economical. They use yeah. all the pieces all at once as much as possible and they shift it out and it's like a Rubik's Cube, a three-dimensional <laughs> Rubik's Cube that moves all the time and it is to the dime. So it's extremely, uh, 
extremely uh, pricey to just say, well, we're going to shoot the first scene and then the second scene, and then we'll drive way over here, or fly people out here to shoot the fourth, you know, like. Because this is in order. So, <laughs> but the reason. not how it's yeah. done. It's just not a, nobody, it's just never happens. It's not something never. But Spielberg never. did it for this because it's mostly a young cast and he wanted the emotional through line to work for them as actors. He had to have a pitch. There it is. He had to have a reason. That's the reason. And that's why they did it. And And he said, especially especially for the end, he was like, I really wanted them to say goodbye to E.T. at the end. Because this is the end. It's like your real emotions as a nine-year-old or whatever is going to come in with that. the movie's over. All right. That's it. Go home forever. It's over. Yeah. (laughs) Remember that. This is the last day we're here. Yeah. So it really worked. And of course, because I'm in the adaptation Hunt. Sniffing him out. Even though this is based on his life and he came up with it and all that stuff. There are a lot of comparisons to Peter Pan. So you could say Elliot is one of the Lost Boys. E.T. Mm. is Peter Pan. He can't survive on Earth, similar to emotionally can't survive in the world, has to be in Neverland. totally see The scientists are the pirates. It all kind of (laughs) fits into that paradigm. Hey, he just did a sci-fi Peter (laughs) Pan. (laughs) Yeah. So speaking of sci-fi, this surpassed Star Wars as the highest grossing film of all time. So I have to, this is one I have to double take too, where I'm like, wow, E.T. was like, E.T. was it, baby. <laughs> My mom yeah. loves E.T. Yeah. She'll just, me- she just melts over E.T., I swear. It's beautiful. <laughs> so he, uh, he got it for Jaws, the highest grossing film, and then he got it again, beat out his friend George Lucas for E.T., and then he holds it for 11 years until another Spielberg film comes out. Um, All right, all right. (laughs) So this is now between 1982 and 1985. He is starting, since he's got his own production company, he's starting to not necessarily be the director, but have his hand still in the movements of the film. So Poltergeist was written by Spielberg using elements of that Night Skies Close Encounters 2 stuff that he had done with, but he could not direct it because he was prepping E.T. And they said, you cannot work on this. You cannot work on two things. (laughs) Yeah. No. Um, (laughs) You're shooting it in order. It's an amazing amount of money. Do that. Yeah. (laughs) No. (laughs) Uh, The Twilight Zone, he directed at this time. And then The Goonies was a story that he had done, but was actually written by Chris Columbus, who later did directed the Harry Potter oh first film. So that's that's where there he they are. He had there done some other are. stuff, but that's that's kind of his start is oh, you're gonna write the Goonies for me. Um, right. Because Spielberg actually had bought Chris Columbus's Gremlins script for Amblin a few years previous. No way. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. That's how I love this. Yeah, love so that's it. how he gets I love it. that Chris Columbus is this, this close-knit with him, which I didn't really have a concept of. But yeah. It seems so clear now. Spielberg keeps everybody Gremlins close. Yeah. yeah. And then also he directs The Temple of Doom, which is odd that he's doing a sequel, but it is kind of his property and his baby. Right. And if, you know, it, and like we said, with it being an homage and being a major callback to the serialized uh, mm-hmm. TV, you know, that was their intention dramas, from the beginning. Westerns, you yeah. know, then that starts to fit the format there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, okay. no, that's a good that's a good uh, a good observation. I hadn't thought of that. That makes sense. Yeah. But he changes now in, in the mid 80s, 85. He's switching away from these summer blockbusters. The next film that he directs is The Color Purple, which is an adaptation of Alice (laughs) Walker's Pulitzer Prize winning novel from 1982. 
Yeah. It is a critical smash 11 Academy Award nominations, which probably goes without saying, because almost every one of these films, he gets at least three or four Academy right. Award nominations for. And then I didn't know this historically, but he, so in 87, China opened up again to Western investment. So he shot the first American film in Shanghai since the 1930s. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. He, yeah, he brings it back. So the opening of the Chinese film market, now you see Mark Wahlberg is in some random Chinese produced film. You know, like that was, Steven Spielberg started that up again in 87. Wow. Uh, the film was an adaptation, again, of a book by J.G. Ballard. It's called Empire of the Sun and yes. got six Academy Awards historical piece Christian Bale Christian Bale exactly it was his as first child as a child actor Christian yeah. Bale found him found Christian Bale at the age of God. 13 <laughs> I forget about that <laughs> so like, many oh, things yeah. we forget about that's entire Christian Bale's whole career is yeah. uh, probably because Steven Spielberg <laughs> in China <laughs> yeah found Batman <laughs> um speaking of Batman so Steven Spielberg goes back to blockbuster so the last crusade the the Indiana Jones business was the highest grossing film of 89. It beat out Batman in the worldwide box office, which everybody wow. was surprised by because Batman wow. seemed like a sure bet yeah. for that year. And then that same year did a his first romantic film called Always, which was a remake of another yes. film. Not an adaptation, but a remake. Yes, yes. I and smile had, when I think of this one because nobody remembers this. One. <laughs> right, <laughs> it was odd. It got but very mixed reviews. Here we are, always. <laughs> yeah, the cover looks like a romantic, sappy film, and it is. Um, so people didn't really like that. Now, as we move into the '90s, he is producing Warner Brothers cartoon hits, Tiny Toons, Animaniacs, Pinky and the Brain. He's still got his producerial fingers in the pies. He, he just produced uh, the uh, uh, Roger Rabbit again. We'll mention right. for the third time. This is just this in, right in this time. Um, and so he's, which we did a whole episode on, and you should go. It's <laughs> amazing. But he's mixing it up still with the adaptation. So in 1991. He does a sequel to Peter Pan and Wendy called Hook. And part of I had his, no idea. Yeah. I had no idea that this was not critically received well, that this was kind of panned. I had I my whole childhood, mm -hmm. I grew up thinking this is just another Steven Spielberg smash. <laughs> <laughs> now it is, but at the time now and now it is. I think it's come around as you know, now that we're all adults, we're all mm -hmm. looking at each other. No, right. It was amazing. Yes, it was. Yeah. You know, he's in the midst of his career. He's won Oscars and Oscars. You know, he is changing Hollywood and he's still trying to figure out, you know, he's still, still trying to figure out what makes it tick. But right in the middle of that, he's not just making something about nothing that he doesn't know about. Like, mm -hmm. you think he's not thinking about Peter Pan and this version of Peter Pan who has grown up and forgotten yeah. who he is and mm -hmm. has lost touch with, him, with himself. <laughs> right. Are you, are you saying he just like, yeah, it was just a cash in. He just did that for the money. He certainly didn't yeah. give that any, any, every <laughs> intimate everything, thought. Everything, everything he cares about. <laughs> so yeah, it's crazy how much he thinks about it. So in, in speaking to that, one of the things that he really wanted to do, and this is almost 10 years in the making, because he had said, oh, I wasn't mature enough to figure out a way to do this. He wanted to film Schindler's List after Hook. That, he wanted that to be his next film. The president of Universal gave him the green light, said, we'll help you with this, because this, on the surface, nobody has really tackled this subject matter in this way. Yeah. It's it's something that's going to be big. 
but he said, we'll give you the green light, but you have to do this film that we already bought the rights to first that we want you to do. And it's called Jurassic Park. <laughs> and so that is where we are going to end this part one, ah. leaving you on the cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Taylor. Thank you so much. We'll pick it up with Jurassic Park next week. Yeah, still covering with uh, with Spielberg. So I, I know that we had some uh, some Spotify rap some shout outs there so thank you guys if we were in your top we saw a couple of those we're gonna get to uh ready player one next week so <laughs> right <laughs> um yeah yeah thank you guys for listening um that we'd love to see that kind of stuff i was really amazed at some of it so thank you guys what are you excited about you never know if we're gonna do an episode on it so you might as well get it on our radar uh send us the message at illiterate pod on instagram and uh we will finish the tale of steven spielberg <laughs> next week thank you guys